Welcome to Books That Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. The loudest person in the room or the person with the most seniority often wants to control the conversation and so that cuts off any chance for real dialogue and any chance for real candor, actually, right? And we know that teams that have a high degree of candor offer the psychological safety to get to really transformational places. That's Karen Hold, founder of Experience Labs and the co-author of the book Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey with Jean Ledger from the University of Virginia and Jessica Eldridge, a consultant working on educational equity and purposeful innovation. Quickly, a congrats to Olivia Payne, winner of our last book, Mother of Invention. Let me know what you think of this episode or follow Books at Work on Instagram and you'll go into the draw for this Experiencing Design book. It's a full book that guides us through design thinking as a creative problem-solving process through to embracing the concepts of design thinking and how we lead and work. So let's get into our speed read of Experiencing Design. Do you know what design thinking is? Have you been part of a design thinking process? Or are you an expert already? Whatever your answer is, this book has something for you. This book and its highly qualified authors want to open our eyes and minds to how design thinking can create transformational impact, not only for innovation, but for us as individuals. With that in mind, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to the speed read by focusing on just a handful of concepts of design thinking and in parallel challenge us to think about how we might apply them more generally and how we lead and how we do things at work. Then tease them out a little bit more in the conversation with Karen. A recap of the basics of design thinking. It takes a human-centered approach to solving problems and fostering innovation. It's founded on an approach that develops a deep, empathetic understanding of the needs and content of those being designed for. It relies on diverse teams to do the thinking and work. Design thinking creates multiple solutions to a problem and makes them tangible and testable. It fosters conversations that encourage dialogue instead of debate. And design thinking has a structured and facilitated process to create solutions, which frees people up, ironically, to be creative. To be effective design thinkers, our mindsets really should shift from being egocentric to being empathetic, from being detached and distant to curious and personally engaged, from being anxious and impatient to solve a problem and get solutions, to being willing to invest time to understand before developing solutions. Imagine if we adopted all of these things more generally in the workplace, not just in design thinking. What if anything was possible? What if we detached ego from our ideas? What if we listened to others through the perspective of what they want to say, rather than what we want to hear? Now back to the concepts behind design thinking. It relies on a discovery process underpinned by some of these things, including this concept called immersion. This is where data and information is gathered that deepens our understanding of a problem and the people who we are trying to problem solve for. Another concept is sense making, where we are finding the meaning in everything we've observed and the data we've collected, and we turn this into valuable insights. 
Another concept underpinning design thinking is emergence, where many solutions to a problem emerge and prototypes and hypotheses are tested. Design thinking requires us to make sense of what we've discovered. This involves a willingness to step into ambiguity, being clear about what's important to who we're designing for, and having an ability to reframe a problem in ways that open up new and different possibilities. Again, imagine if this sort of thinking was just how we did things in the workplace and with our teams and peers. The challenge I took from this book was, how can design thinking help create innovation and ideas and transform how we see and approach each other and what goes on in our workplaces. I've hardly scratched the surface of what is in the Experiencing Design book and I'm keen for Karen Holt to do more justice to the content. So let's talk to her now. So I'm welcoming to the show Karen Holt. Now where in the world are you and what's the view out your window? I'm in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is a community right outside of Washington, D.C. And the view out my window today is a beautiful, sunny day. We have had a lot of um, stormy weather the last week. We had an ice storm uh, yesterday. I could never believe that we'd have such a beautiful, sunny day today after the terrible weather we had yesterday. Um, But we have a beautiful, sunny day, and I'm looking out over a park, which is just lovely. Sounds serene. Um, Right, let's kick into it because we've got such a lot to cover as usual with books at work and really keen to start off with why write this book? What what was the gap that the three of you saw that meant you wanted to go to print? Yeah, well, in this book, um, we are looking at design thinking and its impact, not from the perspective of the customer, Um, and those who use it um, for, but instead from the perspective of those who are the users of design thinking, so the innovators. And the question that motivated us in writing this was a question around what does it take to do design well? Um, We know that as we see design thinking and the popularity of design thinking, Um, penetrating into the market, we see a lot of one-day hackathons, um, and we worried um, that people were not actually able to unlock the transformational potential of design thinking that we know design thinking offers to those who use it. Um, And so that's why we wrote the book. Um, We focus on the developmental pathway of the users of design thinking. Um, And it's based on a lot of research that we've done over the last decade. My co-author, Jean Litka, has, uh, she's a professor, uh, tenured professor at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. And she's been running a 10 year research study on uh, creative thinkers who have been able to achieve transformational impact um, without, um, with, without the infrastructure in place um, to provide them that um that growth, meaning they're, they're managers just like you and me, right? They're, they're people just like you and me, but they've achieved this incredible um, outcome relative to their peers. And so, um, so we've based a lot of our research on the work that she's been running for 10 years with those, um, with those managers. Wonderful. So let's dive into some of the key concepts in the book. So, so the first one is discovery. So can we talk about immersion? Can you talk about the limitations in our mindsets when it comes to immersion? And what do we need to do to shift our mindsets? 
Yes. So um, in immersion, um, we know that when we start out doing um, research and we start out doing um, ethnographic interviewing and, and doing data collection, that if we do that at a superficial level, we're not going to understand what the, what the lives of our users is because we haven't shifted our own perspective from our own ego and our own experiences to that of the users that we're actually trying to design for. Um, and I think this is really one of the most important activities in design thinking, because without that opportunity to shift our mindset from this egocentric bias to an empathetic one, we're not able to learn about our own um, biases that enter our problem-solving efforts. Um, and that can affect the whole rest of the journey, right? If, we, if we're not able to shift our mindset at the beginning and really step into somebody else's world and try and understand their experiences, most of which because we're all action-oriented people, right? We all, we all think we're smart, we identify as problem solvers. And so we want to step in and solve problems quickly. But if we don't pause and take that opportunity to shift our mindset from our own view of the world to the view of the world that our users are experiencing, we'll never be able to create the value that is important for the users that we're actually designing for. So what, what are those shifts that we need to, to make? What, what sort of mindsets do we need to have? Yeah, well, I think the most important mindset that we need to have, like I said, is this moving from an egocentric um, mindset to an empathetic um, mindset. Um, being aware of our own personal biases. I think um, when, we, when we're detached, and really distant from the experiences of our users, then we're not able to create um, the real value for them. We're also not able to create the engagement in ourselves to generate energy and enthusiasm in the people that we're working with to even really care about the problems of these other people. So, so moving from being detached to being engaged and interested um, and being impatient and anxious to solve the problem, I think is something that I work with innovators every single day because the, again, they really identify innovators, managers, um, mid-level professionals, even young professionals, they want to get right to the solving of the problem. Um, and it seems inefficient. It seems um, like um, a waste of time to sort of sit and wallow. It's one of my favorite words, <laughs> wallow in the problem. Um, but it, unless we do that, we are never able to create that new value that we're trying to create for others in the process. You also talk about the, the treating things as a hypothesis. Um, can mm. you talk a little bit about that? What, what do you mean by that? Yes, well, what I mean by that is that um, when we are problem solving and the way scientists think about problem solving is that every, every problem that they're working with is a hypothesis to be tested. And I think this is one of the most important um, sets of activities that 
um, managers can bring to the work that they're doing every day is to treat their knowledge as a hypothesis to be tested, which means testing the assumptions behind our ideas to find out what really has to be true for our ideas to be good ideas. We're often so attached to our own rightness that it's really difficult to set aside our own expectations of what we think is true to understand the world and give our users the benefit of the doubt that they view the world differently than we do. And so if you treat everything as a hypothesis, you don't get too attached to your own correctness and your own rightness. And you can learn from your users because you've given them the benefit of the doubt that they have a different experience than you might be having in the same set of circumstances. So what makes this stage, the immersion stage, so hard? Well, I think what makes it hard is that um, we all think we are knowers, right? We, we all think that we know the world, <laughs> we, you know, based on our own experiences. Um, we think that the world operates in a certain way. We think that that the way that we see the world is true for the way everyone sees the world. How do you get yourself out of that? Um, what sort of questions can you ask yourself? So can we ask ourselves to help us get out of that? Well, so again, I think this is why it's so important to move from being egocentric to being mm. empathetic, right? As long as we are um, seeing the world from our own point of view, and we are not aware of our own biases about how we make decisions, I think it's impossible to get ourselves out of that, which is why we were so excited to write this book to even create an awareness that these are the mindset shifts that we have to have if we are trying to unlock the transformational potential of all of these tools. One thing that I loved about the book was you know, it's, it's uh, well, it, there's a lot in there and I loved the content in relation to design thinking, but I also loved it in relation to just being a leader. And, you know, if you apply these um, attributes that you talk about in immersion, like amazing leaders will come out of that. So, yeah, there was lots, lots of applicability uh, beyond design thinking for me. You know, that <laughs> that is something that is so true about the book, because you know, we, we called it the innovator's journey and we've dedicated the last decade of our careers to design thinking. But at the end of the book writing process, we said the same thing, right? These are leadership skills for leaders and it happens to be associated with both a process, right? Because there are steps to learn in the design thinking process. But these are really the experiences that we want people to have in order to become someone new. And that's about leadership. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Right, let's get into um, another part of the discovery phase, which is sense-making. Um, so why does sense-making matter? Oh, sense-making. This is, um, again, I love all the, I love all the <laughs> things because they all, they layer into each other and each one of them is so important. Um, and sense-making is when we start to make sense of all the data that we've collected, right? And I think the most important thing that people can learn in the sense-making process is how to overcome 
um, the discomfort that is associated with so much ambiguity. Um, because when you're collecting data in immersion and, and when you are looking for inspiration about how to solve for your potential users, there's a lot of contradictory information. There's a lot of, of data that can seem overwhelming and, uh, and you have to be comfortable with the ambiguity that it requires to step into that. Sometimes I think of this like a hoarder's house and there's just bits, like your brain feels like there's just bits all over the floor and you know there's a gem in there, but you just don't have the heart to try and search for it because the task seems so overwhelming. But it's absolutely critical to take the time to stare at your data and to find out where those gems are and be comfortable with that ambiguity um, and to be willing to even step into the ambiguity so that you can serve the users that you're trying to solve for. So how do you do that? What sort of behaviors do you need to, to learn or exhibit? Yes, well, there are a lot of um, behaviors you need to learn. <laughs> it's one of the most important um, phases in the journey, right? And I think so controlling our need for closure, right? That's being willing to step into that ambiguity. Um, so using answers as stepping stones to the next question is important. Um, brainstorming more deliberate questions that could um, help make progress on whatever we're trying to solve. Um, being patient with the iteration and the search, again, operating under an assumption that I don't know things that I need to know and being willing to step in and continue to search, right? Being patient in that search. Also um, assembling what I call like a brain trust that's willing to challenge um, your thinking if you're stuck. Um, even having like regular um, notes days where you you go in and you look at the, the the data that you've collected and you try and find the patterns and try and find um, the inspiration in the data so you're not waiting till the end to to try and figure out um, what that is. Um, I think another important thing is um, treating differing views as an opportunity to understand and learn and not debate. Um, I think debate, it really can sidetrack um, the whole innovation process. Um, so treating it as an opportunity to understand and to learn um, is really important. And, and really being careful about team cohesion here, um, carving out time to, to learn from people that are not like us are some of the things that are really important for us to do. So that leads me on to one of my other questions about debate versus dialogue. So <laughs> tell me about dialogue. What, what is that? And yeah, what, what is that? And what does it look like? Yeah, so dialogue, um, I, a lot of people don't know what um, dialogue looks like, right? Because they're only thinking about um, debate. Um, di what dialogue looks like is that we're listening to understand 
um, the content of another person's thoughts, the meaning it has for them and the feelings that they have about an idea or solution and seeking to understand the persuasiveness of somebody else's ideas rather than um, shutting them down, avoiding the rules of turn-taking that are really important um, to manage dialogue and to manage conversation, um, recognizing that that turn-taking also fosters attention and, and being patient with that attention because it might take longer to engage in dialogue than it just than it does to um, take debate. Um, and in hierarchical organizations, this is really hard, right? Because um, the loudest person in the room or the person with the most seniority uh, often wants to control the conversation. And so that cuts off any chance for real dialogue and any chance for real candor actually, right? And we know that teams that have a high degree of candor offer the psychological safety to get to really transformational places. And those teams that where there's no candor and there's no dialogue, right? Seeking to understand everyone's idea and, and taking the personal and the personalities out of it um, engages in more constructive conversation. I really wish that um, I had read this book and had this conversation before <laughs> I had done a couple of design thinking sessions with previous organizations I've been in and I really wish that other people in those sessions had heard this too. So hopefully it'll be really helpful for people who are, you know, embarking on design thinking or have had, you know, an experience already. So um, beautiful, thank you. Um, so just quickly wanted to talk about the emergence phase. What is this oh, yeah. and, and what comes out of that? So emergence, I think, is um, is one of the places um, where we're really highlighting the difference between the doing of design thinking and the experiencing of design thinking. Because the doing in emergence is brainstorming, right? It's it's idea generation. But just doing a couple rounds of brainstorming does not set the conditions for emergence to happen. And emergence happens when you are very intentional about allowing higher order solutions to develop out of um, your brainstorming. Um, it, it means that the team believes there's not just one solution to a problem. So often when I work with teams, they really have a solution that's masquerading as a problem. And, um, and it's really hard to get creative when you're fighting for your idea. One of the reasons that that happens is that people don't believe there's more than one solution to a problem. And I'm here to tell you, there are many ways to solve problems. <laughs> you have to be clear about exactly what the problem is and then you can brainstorm many ways to solve um, particular problems. So believing that there's not, you know, one right solution is um, is one of the conditions. Um, I also think that um, people's belief in their own creativity and, their, and having their own creative competence is another really important condition. And if they have become inspired by the people that they're trying to serve, by the time 
um, most innovators get to emergence. They really begin to believe in their own creative confidence because they've seen inspiration in the data that they didn't see when they started looking at the problem, right? Yeah. And uh, and that is so exciting, right? I work with a lot of people, especially people who um, we have four different innovator personalities that we probably won't have enough time to talk about, but are, <laughs> that we detail in the book. And so um, the analysts, the, the people who are very analytically driven, really uncomfortable with qualitative data, when I have... Um, when I have nurtured their creative confidence in the front end of design thinking, by the time they get to emergence, um, it's that's where the ahas happen for them because they've doubted their own ability to be creative and then they get to emergence and they realize, wow, there's lots of opportunity here and there are lots of ways to solve this problem. Um, I also think that um, this is the place where everyone has to bring their authentic self. Um, and you can't withhold all of your experience and um, all of the knowledge that you've acquired to get to that higher order solution. Um, and this is the place where when everybody does bring their authentic self, the diversity of the team is, um, is highlighted and that, and you get to these great, um, higher order solutions, yeah. I'd like to finish with how the book begins. You talk about the need to go deep for design thinking to be really impactful. Why is this so important? And what, what does it mean for how design thinking might shape us as individuals? First of all, I think we tend to skip the places where we don't um, feel comfortable. And um, and it's important to to follow uh, a process which design thinking offers so you don't skip the parts that you don't feel comfortable because in order to become a new person, you have to experience new things and you have to stretch yourself in new places. And, uh, and it's different for everybody, which is why I think design thinking is such a beautiful asset to all organizations, because when everyone is going through the same process or experiencing the same journey, then you don't know where that moment is going to happen for you on that journey, but it's likely to happen for everyone because they haven't skipped the parts that they normally would skip. <laughs> um, and we know that that, that happens, right? If, and, uh, and so I think design thinking just gives us that opportunity to help shape people and make them into somebody new. Um, but we don't know where that's going to be for them in the journey. So by going on the entire journey, then there's a much higher likelihood that they will experience those moments of stretch and growth that will allow them to become someone new in the process. So do you think people who embark on design thinking or who are involved in it realize that? Do they realize that there's that potential to grow and be different? I, I don't think <laughs> most people... I don't think most people do. I think most mid-level professionals think that they've done pretty well for themselves. Thank you very much all these years. And, and they don't really need to, um, to learn a new process, which is why I think, you know, we've seen when people introduce design thinking as a process without the opportunity to associate it with a set of 
personal development opportunities, um, then then most people just think it's a flavor of the month, and you know it's just a it's just another way to do work. Um, and what we're hoping to contribute is an opportunity to um, learn about personal development and to find those places where we can stretch and grow so we can um, we can become a better leader. Perfect. What a great way to end our conversation. Thank you very, very much. Um, thank you for joining Books at Work. And yeah, I really hope that, that lots of people pick up the episode and learn from it. On to the experiencing design, take five. One, diverse teams create new ways of looking at problems and producing novel insights and solutions. Two, ditch the ego to create real innovation and problem solving. Put your ego and rightness to one side and step into ambiguity. Three, wallow in the problem. Be patient, take time, reflect, control the need for closure. Four, ditch debate. Listen to understand. Listen to understand ideas, feelings, and meaning. Five, the concepts of design thinking can change how we lead and work. All we need to do is embrace them. That's Books That Work Done and Dusted for this episode. Please let me know what you think or any books you want featured. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Books That Work, making work better 